Come on, you sissy, be a man. Don't cry. Grow some muscle, you puny wimp. Real men are ripped. Kick his ass. What? You ate a salad? Fucking rabbit food. Real men eat meat, and only meat, cooked over a fire on a stick. You want that woman? Fucking fuck her. What? She said no? So what? Inside, every no is a yes waiting to come out. You just gotta get it out of her by getting it in her. Know what I mean? We all know what toxic masculinity is. Or do we? Why is it suddenly a thing the media is obsessed with? And is it really a new phenomenon at all? Where does it come from? Is it simply an inherent aspect of being a male? How is it taught? How is it reinforced? How is it represented in the stories we read and watch? How do we diffuse it? What is the antidote? Join me and my intrepid co-host, Jen Zuko, as well as some other guests, as we embark on another semi-drunken exploration of the intersection of literature and society as we discuss problematic, toxic masculinity tropes. Hi, how you doing? Hi. Hey, great to meet you. <laughs> That's Paul. Hey, Jen, I wanted to tell you I'm a high school theater teacher, and I and you have a performing arts background, and that's super cool. So I just oh, yay. To float that, that by cool. you. Yeah. Hey. Hey, I just opened a show yesterday, musical, last so. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, my it's college kids are really week. not any higher, any, any like, older, really. They're all insane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting swords into their hands on Tuesday, so that'll be really fun. Excellent. Fun. <laughs> this is Kathleen Barbara. So, Jen and Paul. Hi, Jen and Paul. Hello. Hey. Oh, I have a mute button. Um, so I can choose to subject you to my burps or not, and not not make Heather work too hard. I'm sure she won't mind. She likes, she gets a big kick out of you. You know that, right? She totally does. Yeah, that was really fun to see her actually on the mic. Okay. Um, I don't have my phone up here hold on a second you sent me where is it yes about the article about my subtrope that i'm wanting to add oh oh no i was looking for oh there it is it's a different chat i was looking for for the for a for paul's bio um yeah but actually we'll 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 introduce here in a second. I mean, I'm recording now, so we'll kind of roll like slow and easy into it. Um, I don't know. Thanks for joining us, Paul. It's great to be here. Okay. Where's your laser pointer? Right there. <laughs> Looks like we've recruited uh, Kathleen to distract the cat. Okay. By the way, it's just that she's the cat distractor, official cat distractor. That's a good internet <laughs> job to have. It's what I've always dreamed of, living the dream. <laughs> okay. Um, let me uh, get myself a little centered here. Yeah, we don't record the, the audio, I mean the, the video, by the way, you guys, just so yeah. you know. Yeah, so oh, you, can, you can pick so your the, nose and do whatever. But we just so look at, we The look. light beaming off my forehead is okay. We don't have to <laughs> worry about that in post. Nope. It's nope. glorious. <laughs> <laughs> you can navigate by it. 
Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's just that we, we just do this so we can actually look at each other and have a conversation. And then yeah, the, yeah. the conversation yeah. just sounds. Yeah. Well, it's, it's helpful. It's, it's we have we aren't able to quite get the parasympathetic responses that we would sitting across the table from each other, but it, but it's close enough. Well, we have it's the something. line and the yeah, and we the can see visual. some of the body language. We just don't get to see all the fine detail of like how the eyes twitch and the nostrils flare. And, yeah, you know, yay one. Yeah. We'll be okay. dealing with all sorts of neuronal systems as we move through this, so it's nothing. Sweet. To Okay, you guys are going to be fuzzy for a while, but I'm going to put on my... Oh, I was fuzzy for a while. I left my razor here for, like, like five days. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I was, like, this oh, this this 80s girl was not okay. What? I don't think that's what he said. But it's... No, go on. Go on. <laughs> By being fuzzy? Oh, right. Oh, different kind of fuzzy. Sorry. Yeah. No, you're... The, uh, the computer's back a little way, and I've got my reading glasses on now as opposed to my bifocals, so... Okay. Still haven't had to do that. Give it time. Oh, I'm giving it time. I have trifocals. I didn't even know there was such a thing as trifocals. I know. I know. I feel totally one-upped right now. It's not cool. Yeah. Well, it's more like not down-upped. Like, (laughs) this is like not a good thing. (laughs) Brian Regan does a really funny bit about that. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. But it's not, it's a, it's on a zero up. Would that be yep. the right? I don't even know. I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> okay. No, but Brian Regan does this whole thing about that. He's like, is that, a, is that an ant? Is that a comet? Like he does this whole thing about bifocals <laughs> and tribals. I forget the actual bit. Uh, any last Anyway, minute? so hi. Hi. Um, we have... I guess we might as well get started. We have tonight a, a, a giant full house. I don't think we've ever had four people <gasps> on the show at the same time. Never. I, we, we, had, we had three. The most I've ever done is three when, we did, when I did the bad business thing with, uh, with Paul and Todd. Right, and we had They're three big. on our first one of these. Yep, and tonight we have four. And Jen and I are joined tonight by, by two new people, it's for those who are, who are listening and don't want to read the show notes. Um, read them. <laughs> not that I ever really do detailed show notes, but I at least put something in the thing. Um, so we're joined by my friend Kathleen Barbara. Hi. And by Paul Bradley. Did I get that right? Hey, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, well was, I, I had to pause because I, I knew I was going to blank on, on your last name, and I was sitting there looking at it like I just saw it twice. Um, so Take a breath. It's all right. You're um, good. Rather than, than read the bio that we're going to put in the show notes, um, real quick, um, Kathleen, could you tell us who you are? Well, I'm Kathleen, and I have an undergraduate degree in English and theater, and a master's in English language and literature. That's exactly the way they read it off at the graduation, and I think it's hilarious. And I'm a high school theater teacher here in Wichita, Kansas. God bless you. I know. This will be fun. <laughs> and Paul, could you tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah, absolutely. I am uh, Paul Bradley. I uh, Academically, my undergrad was in political science and economics. Uh, my master's is in business administration and finance. Uh, I am a little bit of a philosophy geek. I have a blog called The Power of Dower Blog, where I write about pessimistic philosophy, culture, and politics. And uh, I'm one of those, uh, those fiendish uh, tech industry guys that we're always reading about nowadays. been doing the software and startups for about 25 years. Oh, wow. And my Abundant uh, free time. I am Jen Zuko's administrative assistant. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. And of course, we all are pop culture fans and and watchers of movies <laughs> and 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 observers of tropes. And of course, Jen and I are drunks. But <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Most teachers are also <laughs> drunks, especially in May. You know, business people are drunks too. It's all good. There's a thread of commonality running around all the things that we all do here. So I think we're, we're the same. <laughs> and and tonight we're going to be discussing toxic uh, the the problematic toxic masculinity trope number three, Bond, James Bond, and the sub trope that I very recently have decided to come up with as well. Tag onto, but the, hey, since the series isn't finished, we can do whatever we want. This article has been published, but yes, you're right. Right, we can yeah. do whatever we want. We're adults, grown ups. <laughs> so um, maybe I mean I have an idea of how to summarize it, but I like how since I already wrote the damn thing yep. and pinpointed it myself. So maybe Jason, you should start All as right. we have been. It's, it's kind of our tradition now. So yeah, with, so you start with your idea of what the the Bond James is. Bond trope is is the idea of uh, of the uh, the gentleman monster, the superior man who who has to who is insecure though in his superior superiority and he props it up via brutality and charm. Yeah, right? I like it. Okay. <laughs> that works for me. Anybody want to add anything to that one? <laughs> I will add on the thing that I wrote. Um, Basically, the idea about how we consume this particular trope uh -huh. is that this is a character who basically treats everybody like garbage. He rapes them. He kills them. He plows through them like they right. are worth nothing. But we're still supposed to like him and be charmed by him. Yep. And in the binary world of Hollywood, if we're a man, we're supposed to want to be him. And if we are a woman, we are supposed to want to be with him. <laughs> so that's that's the addition that I would add to that. Right. Okay. Now this thing about this this like this likable like why is this person likable? Like why monster. I'm a huge James Bond fan. Like I, I totally am. I still am. I love it. But I'm like sometimes I stop and I'm like, wait, why? <laughs> yeah. So Well that's kind of the question, isn't it? I mean yeah. why? Right. <laughs> well I don't know that, that I have an question. answer. I've even written an entire article about it, and I'm not actually <laughs> sure I have an answer. I mean, I have this whole thing where I, I do I, in the article. Actually, this is this is kind of important too. We're talking about books versus films. So in right. the books, in the novels, uh, at least the Fleming novels. I've read all the Fleming novels and a couple of the Gardner ones. Not every single Bond novel that's ever been written, but in the Fleming novels in particular, we get a lot more about Bonds emotional life like for example in diamonds are forever he was like bond is like thinking about her he's like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna make my guest room all like 
like, I'm going to make it up for her. And he's like, oh, I really like that she doesn't wear makeup. It, may, it makes it so much more sexy. And I really like her strength. And, like, like we, we get all of his inner stuff. He, like, we can see him actually falling in love with the Bond girl. Right. But the movies don't really have the time or the sort of script writing to delve into that. So all we have is this kind of shallow charmer that yet is still this kind of admirable. I don't, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for it. Right. And I think that that's the fundamental problem with any movies. You don't get the internal monologue without doing voiceover and bond movies are really not the place for a voiceover. Just like all the tropes, it's a matter of paying attention to it and going, Oh wow, what am I consuming? Like why? Right. And just, just the fact that I'm even questioning that is kind of nice. Right. You know, as opposed to just being like, Oh, bond, James Bond is a really, admirable kind of male and I should look for that in my real life <laughs> instead of going this is a ridiculous character and he's awesome and I love him and Stanley Craig has awesome abs so you know like that is is can be okay as long as I'm not if I'm a man emulating this like trying to be this garbage to everyone in my life right and as a woman trying to find someone who treats me like that in real life so as far as like being not I don't want to say dictated by what culture tells me is something to admire, but I guess I am kind of saying that, but anyway. Well, you know, I, if I could, I think that's actually one of the really interesting things. Cause as, as I've uh, watched you work through these various tropes, both the badass female tropes and, you know, the, the toxic masculinity tropes, part of what's always interesting in that is kind of this tension that you seem to always find between what the trope offers at a superficial level, right? What it sort of suggests as a model versus what it really uh-huh. instructs you to do right. or what it really sort of offers. There's almost a, a little bit of an implied bait and switch. And the Bond yeah. character is an interesting one for that. I think in your article, you mentioned the notion of Bond as kind of a perfect gentleman, almost an archetype right. you know, of that. And yet below that is this kind of barbarity of behavior. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I, for myself personally, I my, I became very obsessed with James Bond when I was about 13, and I spent a, a lonely Ooh. incel <laughs> oh, God. watching every oh, no. excellent James Bond movie at the time, which was in you know, the mid-80s or so. Right. Every 13-year-old is an incel. I mean, that's it's no matter what. So, right. right. <laughs> that's, that's for the... We should, we should, we should give the, the insult good community society. a little more latitude. Right? There's, there's an age-appropriate insult. <laughs> right, right. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, but, I mean, Jen, I would, I would kind of look back to you. You know, you think about an, an adolescent man watching the character of James Bond and absorbing what he's absorbing from that. I mean, what is the, the, both the good and the maybe absorbing. something not so good that comes with that? Yeah, what is he learning, Right. I think that there's a lot more of the not so good, actually, <clears throat> especially when it comes to this trope in particular. And it's not just James Bond. I mean, James Bond kind of epitomizes it. But I think that Jason Bourne is sort of sort of a version of it. And there's there's like a bunch of especially action heroes tend to be like this. But right. I think the whole thing about I'm right, I'm best, even someone who is an authority over me isn't right. Even when I'm wrong, I'm still right, though. Like the whole opening sequence of Casino Royale, just to just to pull one particular example out of my head, um, he fucks that whole thing up badly in the beginning. He completely screws it up, and then he breaks into M's, M's house to like <clears throat> talk to her about it. Like that's just all kinds of not 
good. Oh, the Craig. There's version. nothing. Oh, there's the nothing Craig admirable version. about that, except we're supposed to think that it's admirable for some reason because he's awesome because he's so he's so good at, at everything. <clears throat> Sorry, but do you know what I mean? Like he's always right, even when he's not right, he's always right, and I think that's really dangerous, especially as you said, Paul, like someone who's that young trying to grow up, trying to find his way in the world. It's like, yeah, you know what? Maybe just listen to your dad or like maybe just listen to your teacher or like maybe maybe this person M who's the head of your organization maybe you should follow your orders you know like I don't know it, it's this whole thing about he just in just I, I talk about in the article about the beginning of Goldfinger mm-hmm. he literally just steamrollers over at least five people before the first 20 minutes of the movie is over and that includes ruining a woman's car, includes basically raping another woman, it includes grabbing the keys physically from a maid, it includes, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. It's like, this is all fine, right, though, because, right. I, and I was thinking, I was reading, rereading my article again, and I was thinking that the reason that we're supposed to admire him or want to be his arm candy is that it's almost like a means to an end kind of thing. It's like, oh, don't worry, he's going to save the day. So you can trust him to treat the black people like shit and to rape the women and to kill everybody who stands in his way, just like a video game, because he's going to save the world. Just trust him. He's not he doesn't follow rules. He's a loner, daddy, a rebel. But do you know what I mean? Like because at the end he's going to have foiled the villain that means that all of that horrible stuff he does to all the people around him is okay. And he ends up proving himself superior to all, which is his whole problem with the trope is that I'm better than anyone. So, I'm better even so, than the people who are better than me. With some of that, then, how do you explain some of the uh, the revenge storylines that are that are present in some of the Bond stories where his partners, cohorts, I mean, The Living Daylights is, is a prime example or no, or no mm-hmm. um, not the Living Daylights. It's the the first, not the first. It's the second Timothy Dalton one, where um, Felix Leiter uh-huh. has his leg bitten off by a shark, and and Bond goes on that. You know, he M. You know, basically cuts him off and says, "You don't. Your license has been revoked." And and yeah, license to kill. It was going to be called license, license to, to kill. Revoke. Yeah, yeah. And he goes off on that single handed. Because, you know, we talked about this the last time around. Um, I, for me, when reading these tropes, there's always a but. Always a but. <laughs> Find the but. That's what we were saying last time. Find the but. And I, because I, that's, after I wrote my little one-sentence description of the trope, I said, okay, I see it, but... <laughs> What about the villain trope? I mean, this is the thing that Bond is always balanced against is his, is his villain. And we talked mm-hmm. about this a little bit in the previous show where, you know, the, the um, in Grow a Pair, which is where what, and maybe even in the first one, that oftentimes these tropes, when they are countered by what they're balanced by is, is this image of, of another man as somehow weaker, lesser, more effeminate and so on and so forth. But when you take a look at the Bond villains, they're not... Yeah. They might be more refined, more ostentatiously mannered, 
but they're not more effeminate. They're not weaker. You know, Blofeld may have been in a wheelchair, but he commanded an entire army. Um, the Goldfinger, um, Dr. No, um, the man well, with the golden because gun. Of their, because of their megalomania. They don't have the, the adaptability but and the Bond's multiple skills of Bondus. But they're just as ruthless, just as vicious, just as rapey, just as violent, just as strong, just as powerful. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a good villain. You know what I think it is? I think that actually the villains tend to have a few more morals than Bond does. They follow the rules. They're they're more like lawful evil, and Bond is more like chaotic evil. Mm. Interesting. Using using D and D speak, Um, because you know Bond. Say more about that. But well, Bond will do anything to get his what he wants and what he wants is whatever he happens to whatever his, his objective happens to be in the scene his super objective is always you know foil the villain save the world but he will do anything he will do anything the villains won't won't do anything the villains actually abide by very strict rules the villain in dr no isn't gonna just rape and kill the bond girl no 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 that's not how he works he will kidnap her. He will. He will treat them very well. He has this whole like thing about hospitality, bringing them to his lair. Um, all Bond villains tend to have this kind of. It's. It's now. This is a different kind of comedic trope. This over elaborate way of trapping Bond into a situation to kill him. Right. But the Bond villains tend to have rules, codes of conduct that they don't break. I don't and because know. Goldfinger plays, painted that one girl to death. <laughs> yeah, because she she violated his code of conduct. She was, and he was cheating at cards. But he has this very strict set of rules that he abides by. Right, Bond there, breaks every those... single one of the rules. Every Bond villain I can think of has a very strict, and even though they're fucked up rules and they're not like good rules, right? He's still within their own little villainy little place that they live in. And their insane egotism, which is, of right. course, always the case with a Bond villain, right? right. Um, but they always have a very strict set of things that they won't do. Like so they will. I, there's something really fascinating there. Actually, do, do you want to go, Jason? I'll, go, go, I'll pick go. up. Yeah. So, so here's a question that I'm really interested in, Jen. And and let me just kind of riff on this for a second. But I'd love to know what you think. One of the things that that I think about with James Bond compared to some of the other male character archetypes you've looked at, James Bond is explicitly an instrument of state power, right? He's explicitly, in a certain sense, an embodiment of a state ideology. So it's interesting when you remark that in and, and Britishness, but, you know, that he's chaotic, he'll do anything, but he'll do anything in service of the crown. True, and true, there's, right. There's almost kind of a, 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 a Zizekian joke somewhere in there about kind of the groundhog day. <laughs> so you move through the canon, right? No matter no matter how many times Bond sails away with the pretty girl, the next movie he always somehow is back at MI6 and, or whatever oh, it yeah. is. And he's, you know, he always returns to that role. So is there something there in terms of how, yes, James Bond sort of has unlimited license. He has license to kill, literally. It's in the nature of the character. But yet that is justified in a sense or ties in in some way to the fact that James Bond is in the service of or in Her Majesty's Secret Service. That that's essential to the character that he is kind of a state entity. I think a few things about that. One is that, yes, and, and that's part of what I'm trying. I think I'm trying to say that, that you're saying more clearly about the ends justifies the means. So mm-hmm. whatever, however dirty he'll fight 
it's still for queen and country. So it's all, it's all good. And the villains always are just for themselves. They're literally selfish entities. They only think about themselves. They only care about themselves, but they don't ever seem to fight as dirty as bond. And that's an interesting thing about like how bond is like the ultimate sort of British blunt instrument, I guess he, he is a state tool, but he, he will fight so much dirtier than any of the bad guys. It seems like to me, I don't know. He is often alone and the bad guys have armies. So why wouldn't the lone guy fight dirtier? And that maybe this is a particularly male, you know, patriarchal masculine viewpoint is that if I'm outnumbered, I don't, and I'm still the good guy or think of myself as the good guy and I'm outnumbered, I'm going to be a whole lot more vicious than the 60 guys I'm facing down. Yeah, but that's not like he's a spy. He's not the head of an army. He's not a general. So his his whole ta- se- se- like series of tactics is going to be different. Yeah, but I think that's kind of the interesting thing if you if you frame Bond in terms of ideology, right? If you frame Bond in terms of in terms, you know, because I'm a I'm a politics guy. I mean, that's that's a lot of what I write and, and think about. You know, I, I think what you said about the ends justifying the means becomes really interesting. And again, I go back to my 13 year old mm-hmm. self, right, receiving the the, 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 the spoken and unspoken <laughs> lessons of James Bond, right. <laughs> but, but, you know, think about American culture, right? We, you know, who do we venerate in real life? We we look at, uh, you know, uh, Jocko Willink and Coleman Ruiz and all these Navy SEAL special forces operator guys sure. that are now media figures and how they're consulting companies. You know, we have this mystique around the sort of super soldier notion. We we venerate somebody who has who, you know, who has killed dozens of people, and we you know, as a, I, I think a lot of American and boys, myself included, right? Somewhere in you have that fantasy of, oh, gee, what if I was the Delta Force guy? Yeah. You know, James Bond is that SAS operator turned into the spy. He's no longer operating as part of a military unit. He's operating, you know, as Jason pointed out, as a lone wolf. Um, but his position as a representation of the dominant ideology gives him this kind of license. Well, um. Just at the very beginning, talking about, like, why do we gravitate towards Bond? Why do we approve of him? I think that that part of it is that we, like, you know, yeah, he works for the state, but he's this loner um, defeating all of these people, and he's got all this confidence. And I think that we, you know, we like to see the one guy, you know, maybe he's part of an entity, but he's he's able to get away with all this stuff. He's able to break the rules, and eventually he'll get approved. And I think we like seeing the loner do that. I think that's part of the reason why we like him. Yeah. He's not just, he doesn't mindlessly break the rules. He actually like, he does them in a way that makes him succeed even more than his, like his superiors are telling him. Right. And there's like, there's poetry and romance and being a loner that can do that, that has that confidence and that success. So. And so I would again, bring it, just bring up to question, like all, all this, like, Right up you until you kiss the girl of, until she likes you. Yeah, you kiss her until <laughs> she likes it, right? Or like all this, this basically trail of destruction he leaves behind him, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I and would like to not... leave a trail of destruction behind me, but <laughs> that's for other well, okay, reasons. Okay, so let's talk about that. I'm going to go in the other room just to see if this like mic thing could be solved doing that too. 
Um, I mean, my mom was in but love yeah, so with... like, so tell me about that though, Jason, is that like, is that an actual male fantasy though? So to leave, leave a, rec- a I'm, not, I'm not even like, I'm par- I'm partially joking, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. And, and I think part of it, I think part of the reason that the bond trope is so appealing to guys, why, why that is, is because in real life we do feel, even though we are the, uh, the straight white male, we're at the top of the, uh, the patriarchal high, um, pyramid. There's, there's a certain amount of vulnerability that either we're either conscious of or consciously trying to repress. And right. the idea of bond being able to, you know, get the girl, defeat the enemy, you know, be ruthless and come out on top. That has a certain kind of appeal. by himself. By himself, because yeah. there's if if you try to live up what by trying to live up to that ideal, you're shoring up exactly what you've notified identified as being the problem with with Bond that he is fundamentally insecure in his superiority, and so he has to put it on display. There's there's a fear of vulnerability within that, and that resonates with with mortal human males because we all have a fear of vulnerability. That's been conditioned into us by the patriarchal environment because vulnerability is not masculine. Right. Well, and it's you know it's interesting to think about the notion of you know being an alpha male, being at the top of the stack is itself a, a very anxiety-producing state, right? And, and Bond sort of shows something that we, you, you can't really achieve as a human, which is to be in that place where you've you've bested all the rivals and you've risen to the top of the baboon troop, but you're also completely cool and you're completely chill and comfortable in that place, right? <laughs> which, which isn't part of the primate experience, much less the human experience. The only reason I want to be a baboon is that bright red ass. <laughs> I mean, don't we all? <laughs> well, that's the beautiful thing about baboons is that you know, there's there's no mystery to baboon sexuality. The bright red ass shows up. Somebody's fucking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was t- I was talking to Jason earlier about about James Bond because I read your article and it brought back all of these kind of my memories of James Bond and um, that my my older brother like watched some of the movies first, but my first James Bond was Roger Moore's James Bond. Mm-hmm. And I really loved Roger Moore as James Bond. And my brother informed me that that was like the wrong James Bond to like. Right, that, yeah. That, James, that Roger Moore was the pussy James Bond. He was the James Bond that was not as ruthless, not as strong, not as, and the right Bond to like was Sean Connery's James Bond. But when I watched Sean Connery's James Bond as like a, we're talking like a preteen, like 12, 11, mm-hmm, 12, mm-hmm. maybe like early teenage, 13. Um, he scared me. I didn't think he was, I didn't, I, I was scared of him. Like he seemed as bad as one of the villains, you know? So yeah, I, th- I think that's very interesting. Moore, yeah, it is. Because Roger Moore, I mean, I'm sure he did things that were just as bad, I'm sure. But to me, he seemed to be, the kind of, you know, he seemed like a gentler, kinder, more debonair, more charming, you know, that he wouldn't hurt you as much as Sean Connery would. You know what I mean? Like, like that I could actually, like, you know, manage a conversation with Roger Moore, but I would just, like, run away from Sean Connery's James Bond. But my mom would always be like, she'd say, 
she'd say she wouldn't care or she would imply she didn't say this outright because it's the seventies, but, um, she would imply <laughs> that she wouldn't care if she died the next day, if she got to like have sex with Sean Connery, that would be perfectly okay. <laughs> so what is it about Sean Connery that would make like a woman in her, I don't know, late thirties in the seventies say that, you know, why, you know, she, but she didn't have the interest. Yeah. She also thought Roger Moore was the pussy James Bond. He, so. He's a lot more arch, and they had a lot more co- sort of yeah. comedic situations they with did. Roger Moore. And I like, yeah. and that's what I gravitated to at that age. And I thought that I thought the Sean Connery was cruel, and and he had dead eyes, and I didn't like him as a as at that age. Yeah, I didn't think he was sexy or hot or anything. But my mom, you know, had this visceral reaction to him. So he's on her bucket list. I know. <laughs> I well, well, that's that's interesting, though, right? I mean, yeah. to what and I don't know the answer to this, but to what extent is it useful or to think of the different James Bond actors as kind of mirrors held up to the culture, right? I mean, what did the oh definitely the '60s brutality of of Sean Connery represent that the '70s smarminess of of Roger Moore correct? And then the '80s sort of archness and and sort of unfeelingness too, which Roger well, and, Moore and, also, yeah. Or you're you know the 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 slick polished aspect of a Pierce Brosnan versus this sort of more sure. grungy, conflicted Daniel Craig. I mean, well, that's actually, actually kind I, of an interesting thing. To say. What does James Bond tell us about ourselves as we watch him evolve? About our right. culture. I, actually, what I find interesting about the Pierce Brosnan Bond is is one very specific difference between his Bond and other Bonds, and that's that he started to kind of be called out on his shit and also that he started to try and act some feelings like his, like Goldeneye. You'll, you'll look at Goldeneye. You'll, you'll see that he's attempting to act some kind of real feelings towards the Bond girl. And that's unusual. That's and never, you also, you also pretty have, much never happened. You also have Bond girls that, that match him. But don't die because right. we, we talked about this with um, "I'm only here for my I'm vagina." I'm only here for my vagina. You know, Pussy yeah. Galore matches Bond is with skill and and strength, but she has to die at the end. Whereas you get to Michelle Yeoh's character, or or well, she doesn't really Halle doesn't Berry's really die at the end, but goes away. Or Halle yeah. Berry's character, you know, Jinx from from the Pierce Brosnan stuff. These are these are co-equal badasses to Bond. They survive alongside him. You know, um, they don't always have to be rescued by him. That's an interesting thing because there is that weird softening. But is there really? Well, I mean, and it's like what we talked about the other night being... about is calling someone a pussy really a bad thing? Because those fuckers can take a <laughs> beating, man. <laughs> what are you, a scrotum? I, re- I realize that now, night. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably, but it's just like, I think it's interesting that my, you know, because my brother watched moonraker just as many times as i did and i think that he loved roger moore too but you know he couldn't admit that he liked roger moore because <laughs> had to write he liked to had to like the more manly sean connery the James kinder Bond. gentler yeah. yeah it's interesting it was all butterfly collars that was the problem <laughs> wow <laughs> <laughs> so how did yeah okay so that's interesting to see how the different iterations of him have are are reflections of our culture because like like I keep repeating too that all these tropes are reflections of our culture but they're also the other way around too it's also what our culture is making 
as well to watch. So it's sort of both things at the same time, or maybe it's sort of a sort of a ripple effect. I'm not sure. Yeah, but it's, yeah that's interesting to see how the character because like when I was the age you're talking about, Kathleen, I was I was reading novels. And so it's like, well, yeah. So when I was 12, 13, I was reading the books. And so I was, I was reading about how, why he was so cruel. He was horribly ruthless and cruel in the books, but like, you can see his whole journey, like about why he makes the choices he makes. And he has horrible ideas about racism and misogyny. He's totally <laughs> misogynist and completely racist. Um, but so, yeah. So how does that, how is that being now retranslated over and over throughout the, the evolution of our culture and it is still, I would argue that it is still a problematic trope, Oh yeah. but it's, it's changed a lot over the years. I mean, look at Daniel Craig's bond as compared to Sean Connery's bond yeah. and they're both super hot. They're both super cruel. They're both super cold. They're both, and they both have a lot of the same characteristics that we learn about from the, the novels bond. But Man, are they just iterated differently? Yeah, they they kind of give Daniel Craig's story arc as Bond has some re, there there's some attempts to give him a reason to be that ruthless, right? There's the this you know in order to get his license to kill, he has to first kill someone, right? That was the whole right, point, right. and and that whole scene right there, that scene, unlike a lot of other Bond fight scenes is reminiscent of that Hitchcock fight scene from some movie. I can't remember what it was, but it was where Hitchcock, you know, had these actors film the fight scene in such a way that it like took like two minutes. It was one of these long drawn out single shot type of fight scenes. And he wanted to show somebody how difficult it is to kill someone with your bare hands. Yeah. How much time and effort and energy it takes. And that fight scene that Daniel Cragen has when he becomes you know, a 007 agent that's filmed in that same fashion to kind of show how difficult it is to actually kill someone, you know, it's also super gritty. It's like a gritty style. That's much more in style from that time period too, though. Like it's, it's all kind of a style thing too. I can say that as someone who works in that particular field is, it is very much coming out of the sort of Jason Bourne, not having that many ridiculous cuts in the fight, but like there is a certain style, almost like a dance oh, yeah. style, yeah. too. That's just oh, also well, it was sort of an announcement of, of intention for the film, right? I mean, it was sure. it was a way of opening up with, hey, we're reframing Bond right. in this very much more gritty, grungy, sweaty way. Check this out, right? Yeah, I yeah. remember being very struck by. Um, the uh, you know because in the older movies you know Bond had the you know killed these people and had all these fights and like he just like brushed to the lint off his tuxedo and went on his merry yeah. way but you know Some after one-liner, right right and so uh, yeah after a snappy comeback um, and you know down here Daniel Craig is washing off the blood it, the the sink is bloody you know he's all banged up and I just remember being really struck by that the first yeah. time I saw it so. I mean, definitely the reframing and and just the way the bodies are portrayed differently, you know, because I think the first thing you see is him in a little bathing suit and not much, you know, in in the old Bond movies, there are bikini clad women everywhere. But in Casino Royale there, I mean, there was a little bit, but you mostly see his body. And at one point he's almost completely naked and it's not sexual. He's being tortured. yeah. Yeah. So it was just a much, just way different. Yeah, I, I actually think that's 
I still kind of go back to that notion of I, I'm a little bit obsessed with this idea of James Bond almost as kind of a political figure, you know, as, right. as kind of an ideological sure, archetype, yeah. you know, and, you know, it, I, I, I can draw a little connection there of, of how James Bond gets reframed over time to how that sort of if you thought of that as a political message, right, saying, hey, in the service of God and country, mm-hmm. anything ultimately is permitted. And by the way, if you can achieve this warrior status, all of these rewards and beautiful women and endless sex and <laughs> honor, you know, kind of accrue to you as a result of this. But you think about, you know. At, at, by the time that that the Daniel Craig Bond appears, you know, at the end of the day, it's an American film for an American audience that's been at war at that point for, what, 12, 13 years, right? Right. It is this almost kind of, let's deliberately ground, if you thought of this in, in quasi-conspiratorial tones, and I don't mean to suggest that that's how it's made, but if you almost ground the, the, the character in, we're getting really bloody, we all know this is actually kind of grungy and ugly, but hey... It still applies, man. You can still be cool. It's a little uglier than it used to be, but you can still be the you can still be a badass warrior. You're still a hero for supporting the government or the or the cause, God yeah. and country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jen, you drew in your article, right? You made you made a very interesting parallel with Bond. Uh, you know, sort of the British Bond is kind of a symbol of uh, the colonial ideology, the colonial rule. Yeah, you know, I think it's yeah. interesting to kind of think of how that evolves through the various Bonds over time and how that portrayal of violence in the Bond franchise evolves over time in that sense. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's very imperialist in the older Bonds and in the novels as well. He's he he's taking over his environment in a lot of the same way as the colonialists or imperialists would take over like like the old British, you know, totally rampaging through India and all that kind of thing. It's like it's it's literally from that kind of tradition, I think. So and you know, um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. So, well, so here's an interesting thing about that. So I was I was thinking about that today as I was, you know, kind of mentally preparing extremely poorly for this podcast. Um, <laughs> but, you know, all you need, about the, yeah, all you need for this podcast <laughs> is wine. That's <laughs> seriously. Just read the, read um, the article, drink some wine, and then flap <laughs> your wine. gums. That's, that's all we do. That's, that's, all I, that's all I brought to the table. So Excellent. So you're perfect um, for the club. <laughs> so, but where I was going to go is – Think about Bond during the Cold War, right? The actual, the the Bonds that were made during that era. Mm -hmm. Bond spent very little time battling the Soviet Union. Even when, and I forget which movies, there were a couple where he dealt with Russians, but he was still usually dealing with rogue generals and figures who had gone off the reservation, even within the Soviet system. I was thinking Goldeneye in particular, yeah. So Bond was rarely ever framed in terms of like an anti-Marxist kind of message. Back to Bond villains a little bit. Mm. Bond villains were always sort of... Ideolo- you know, ideologically driven, I agree. They, they almost always had a sort of a cogent, if warped, ideology of their own. Right. But they were almost always sort of individualistic outliers. And you Bond was almost right. always, in a sense, however chaotic it may have been, kind of a regulator and, and bringing people back into the normative structure. That's interesting. So then, so like, an, like a contemporary Bond then, like a Daniel Craig Bond, he sweeps through and destroys everything in his path, but it's not quite as pointed as say, you know, going through Dr. No and using the black people as tools and looking at the, in the novel, it's this horrible like term for a a mixed, a mixed race people of um, both Chinese and black 
um, ancestry. So and it's very pointedly destroying right. like them and also women. So is it almost more like just everybody now because it's such no, a global I society? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, I wonder if it's a, if it's not so much about wanted destruction as it is about however destructive Bond may be, he always restores the system. Right. Right. Yeah. He saves the day. Yeah. He restores order. And that's because what he restores the... not just order, he restores the order, right? He restores right, the, order. the order of of the of the society, the cultural model of which he's he's a part. Right. And oddly enough, you yeah, because the, the villains have order too. <laughs> well, they have their own order, and it's about redoing and, and order. Yeah. Right. And right. The villains have a non-normative order. They have an order that deviates in some meaningful way from you know, Her Majesty's government from the, the rule of law, from how, however you want to frame. I, and by the way, I don't pretend to understand what Bond's ideology is, right? But, <laughs> I don't know that Bond but, has an ideology. He's directed by the, the political ide- ideology around him. That's, that's queen good. and country. Well, yeah, but that kind of, that's what I think. I, I think, Jason, you just said better what I was trying to say earlier when I mentioned Bond as an instrument of state power, right? Bond isn't really... I think you made a really important point there. Bond isn't ideological at the end of the day. Bond right. is, however, however much he may strain against the system or nominally appear to rebel, Bond is a tool. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an instrument. He's a weapon, yeah. not necessarily a, a thoughtful human being. And he restores the order of the system that he serves in the, in the resolution of every narrative. And he's willing to do what the system is reluctant to do because the system has to ultimately answer to you know the populace and the populace does not want to see that kind of ruthlessness well and the state has to abide by its own rules too well yeah he doesn't necessarily seem to yeah yeah. and so the thing that kind of struck me as i was reading this essay and i and i was hoping i would get a chance to bring it up because i think it's really really important to this particular trope is that we see a different version of this same trope in the Serenity movie. Oh, um, the the character who goes after Mal and mm-hmm. the crew of the Serenity in that that the the monster, the person who's supposed to bring River yeah. back, he is a Bond type. He is this type of character. He's right. better very than everybody else. He's superior. superior. He's strong. He's there in service of the state. And mm-hmm. what you have going on in the Serenity movie is basically Bond losing, right? Yeah, because the state because fucked up so bad and we realize how. Exactly. You're, what you're seeing there is is kind of an interesting antidote to the Bond, James Bond trope, is this realization that well, whatever it is that Bond true. is supporting, whatever that trope is supporting, the ideology, and in this case, we can say that the broader thing that the Bond trope is supporting is the patriarchy, Sure. What we're yeah, seeing oh, sure. is a yeah. way of, of defeating and countering that thing. And in that case, Mal, even though he is morally superior, he has to be as ruthless. Right. And devious. And that's an interesting and thing he can because, because it, he's a pirate. And, yeah. Right. But that's the interesting thing is that it turns it back and points out something that I was trying to say earlier about Bond and his villains – not the villains to Bond are not effeminate. They're not demasculinized. They are mirror no, images of Bond, but they have different foci, if you will. 
you know, sure. Bond is right. in service and of the th- state and the villain is in service of himself. Yep. No matter what his morality or his, his his set of rules are, he's in service of himself. Bond is in service of something other than himself. Yeah, true. Right, I right. Which is key. what makes him the good guy. Yeah. And that it's interesting you bring up Mal and then Serenity, which is that Mal is a pirate. And so he is only in service of himself, but he is the good guy. Right. There's there's a way the to be in service of yourself that is good. There's a way to be in service of yourself that's bad. There's a way to be in service of the state and be good. There's a way to be in service of your of to be in disservice to the state and be bad. The problem is is finding that morally solid ground to stand on and to write our characters better. We were just talking about I think the the first few tropes we've been talking about jason we've been talking about antidotes to to the the problematic tropes where we don't right. we're not really finding good antidotes to the female ones but we're finding like antidotes to the male tropes right i'm wondering if mal might be a good antidote to the james bond trope oh absolutely in a certain way and actually it's funny that you bring up serenity because that assassin character that he appears in like the last episode of firefly too doesn't he and doesn't he talk about that isn't doesn't he like he has all these long monologues that he goes a version a version a version of the assassin character shows up in the last episode it's not the same guy it's not the same guy not the same actor not the same motivation he's a bounty hunter whereas and god fuck it i cannot i i i know that i can picture the dude's name but i know i can't say it right the British actor who plays that assassin in Serenity. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, it's, the assassin is a different person than the right. bounty hunter initially. Okay. these but are. He was the star of the movie the Kinky Boots. Lesser, if you haven't character. seen Kinky Boots, fucking watch Kinky Boots. Kinky Boots is fucking oh. fantastic. Find that movie. Watch it. Okay. The same actor who plays okay. the assassin in Serenity is the star of Kinky Boots, and he's a cross-dresser in Kinky Boots, and he is fucking wonderful i wish i could pronounce his wow. name but he i love him so it's when like, i saw like a, him lie away or something like that yeah and when i saw him do the villain in serenity i was shocked but he is a fantastic actor he is so fucking good you have to watch him in kinky people boots. are actually looking at him funny i'm gonna bring it back around oh, he's pretty people are looking at him he's pretty to play bond yeah he's pretty They're wanting him to, to be the next bond elba I have wow, literally been done. practicing how to say that <laughs> actor's name, and I still can't remember how to say it. What, Idris Elba? It's like a light, no, a light um, I think no, it's Shuatel Efajor. I know I messed it up. I Elf- right. I Elf- Yes, I. But I. But I feel so bad that I can't pronounce his name because I love that actor, and I so I practiced it, and now I can't remember how. Maybe because of the wine. I don't know. Yeah. It's the wine. It's the wine. Everything can be blamed on the I wine. I think it can be. Yeah, you better give me some more so I can really blame it. Well, so, this is really fascinating. There's a lot more that I actually like want to go back and write about now because this is all very – like I'm interestingly looking at like reflections of the changing nature of imperialism through watching James Bond <laughs> right. change the but you know what's You know really what's funny though is that Mal and the whole serenity thing being an antidote to Bond – comes from a straight white man who was thought at one point to be a champion feminist and turned out to be, you know, a douche. Mr. Whedon. And so that brings up a problem we talked about earlier before. Mm-hmm. You know, for for straight white <laughs> we men. Before. 
Well, we, yeah, we had talked about it before, about how it is that straight white men, we're, we're kind of, we've been put in this incredibly narrow, tight, confined box. Yeah. And if we yeah. try to step out of it, we have to be perfect in this current iteration of our culture. And if we're not perfect, we get smacked around for a mistake. So go back now, in the box. that's not to say that Whedon didn't make a huge mistake that deserves to be smacked around for. Right. I mean, right. that was that appears to have been a, a multi year long symptomatic problem with like, I'll cast you in a thing if you sit on my couch and take your pants yeah. off type of thing. And, and that's a, like, whole, nah, that's yeah, not quite like thing. that's not quite like, you know, I'm I'm a feminist champion and I phrased a question wrong type of problem. That's a and you got your ass kicked. Right. Yeah. But it, well, I, what, what you were saying, though, too, is that there's no elbow room for fucking up. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. But, you know, what's interesting, you guys are having this conversation and I'm thinking, well, Bond doesn't get to fuck up in that dimension. I mean, Bond can't fuck up in that dimension, right? I mean, does that bring it back a little bit to the Bond fantasy, right? Bond is a straight white male with no box. Bond is a straight white, well, lots of boxes, but any box he likes, really, right? Bond is a straight white male who isn't- Oh, no, he has total box. Behavior. He has a complete box. If Bond, like, when whenever Bond actually cross-dresses, I think it's only happened- I don't think it's ever happened once. He's he's been in disguise before, Wait, but like you know what I mean. Like he can't. Bond is in this very very strict, ah, okay. straight yeah. white male imperialist so, you know, capitalist box. I was referring in terms of like his behavior vis-a-vis women, right? Vis- right, you know, right. It, it's very difficult for Bond to exceed a, a behavioral limit. Although you're right, he is no. he's very strictly defined in terms of his identity. Yes, that's what I. That's that's what we mean. It's like you you Bond commits all kinds of monstrous acts, but he can't. Like, if he ever was in drag for one moment, it would be not his character. I'm so amazed by how we got to Bond and drag. I really <laughs> I don't know, I don't know where it's going to lead. If, totally if, the next, if the next Bond is a woman, would that pinky be considered Bond and drag? I don't know. I, don't I have no idea what so. to think about that. Yeah. Shocking wine question. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> The only way they that could be more profound is if we were all high. <laughs> no, I'd be asleep. You just see me sleeping on the bed here. You wouldn't. You would have no no feedback from me whatsoever. <laughs> we'd have audio gentle snoring. It would be very yeah, soothing. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah. Jen took an edible, so we're all listening to her commentary through snores. It's like it's like Morse code from the beyond. <laughs> <laughs> What are you dreaming about, Jen? Jen, <laughs> somnambulant ASMR podcast. That's great. Oh my god, I love it. It's never going to happen. And why has there never been a James Bond ASMR video? These are the questions that shape our lives. Uh-huh. Can I talk okay, about I just, this? I just killed I the conversation with that one. Let's let's move. No, on. you didn't, because I'm gonna. I'm I'm just you're, trying to. You're going you know, to move on that. Because when Jason Malat and I are left to our own <laughs> devices with nobody to like curtail us, we like talk for fucking three hours and we don't record the whole thing, but it's like ridiculous. So I'm not going to let that happen. What I want to do is I want to I want to ask you, actually, I'm glad I have more than just, I mean, I love you, Jason, but I, there are more than just Jason here because I want to actually throw this subtrope idea out. Oh, we haven't even gotten to that yet, have as we? Well. Okay. I love you, Jason, but shut up. That's what you're saying. Because <laughs> your subtrope catches me. I'm going to throw it. <laughs> that was such a hokey line. I can't believe I, it. All right. I throw like a girl, so it's fine. Don't worry about it. 
Wow. Yay. Misogyny. Okay, um, so I was struck by an article about the, I don't remember where it was from. I shared it with everybody and all of you. Um, it was the myth of the male genius. Yes. And this is something that I have noticed quite a bit and I noticed it again and I read this whole article and I was like, oh crap, here's a trope that I totally forgot about because it's absolutely a trope. And then I thought, well, wait, maybe it's because I'm very like, I'm very about my numerology. I don't want there to be eight <laughs> problematic <laughs> tropes. I need there to be seven. So in my, in my warped brain, I was like, so maybe this is the subtrope to something that I've already written about or have already come up with. And I realized that this is a subtrope of the James Bond trope. And basically the reason why I came up with that is that it's the same kind of idea, which is that this is a man who is considered superior in every way. And he breaks right. all of the rules and is completely a monster to everyone he's around in particular mm -hmm. in this, in the, the um the male genius trope he tends to be sort of a a rapist most of the time like it's the sort of like english professor sleeping with his students kind of thing it tends to be kind of like that mostly but it's the same kind of rhythm it's this i am so superior because i am such a genius because the ends again i, I just i can't believe i didn't come up with this phrase before when I was writing the article, but the ends justifies the means. So I am right. a genius. The art that I produce is so phenomenal, so amazing, so groundbreaking that whatever I do as a person is okay. Or right. if not okay, it's going to be pardoned or it's going to be overlooked because it doesn't, that doesn't matter as much as the art that I produce. So in James Bond's case, in the Bond James Bond, it's, oh, I'm going to save the world, so don't worry about the people that I've killed and people that I've raped, because I'm going to save the world. In the male genius trope, it's the sub-trope to this because of that same thing. Don't worry about all the people that I've raped, the people that I've destroyed. It's because it's of this It's the same art. trope, but without the violence. Well, there is violence. Well, 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 well that rape as being violent. Yeah, that's what I just said. <laughs> yeah. Let me. It's with without the murder. It's not imperial. It's not as imperial. It's the same trope without the murder. Government sanctioned. Does that? Yeah, I mean, that's. Does that work? That, the same that's, trope, that's but without the murder. You're right. Right. It's still about dominance and violence, but it nobody dies. In the yeah, right. Okay. The state monopoly on legitimized violence is not part of this equation, <laughs> right? But violence may violence of various types may still be part of it. I, I think you're absolutely on. I think that, I think it's very much a commonality. Yeah. No. And something else we noticed this, this, when Paul this, and I were talking about this the other day. This trope explains we talking, Sherman Alexi. It explains. Yeah. Um, who's that other writer well, who we were did the? About Joss uh, Whedon. Joss Whedon. It explains the guy that wrote. Uh, that book Oscar, the un whatever fucking something of Oscar Wow or whatever. What was his name? He was a uh, oh fuck. Who was oh, that? Oh, that right? one. What? Um. Of course, it's on the tip of my. Uh, <clears throat> it's on um, the tip of his Oscar Wilde. <laughs> God damn it! I got you. Nope. Kathleen will look. Well, it up it, you know, and it's the Woody. It's the Woody Allen's, and it's the yes. It's, well, but but here's the thing. You know. Yeah, but but here's something that Jen and I were talking about. Bill Cosby. I'm really in this. We're talking about Bill right. Cosby. What? Are, but here's the thing: what do all those figures have in common? They're all real people. Yeah, and that's something I think is really interesting. Right? Most of the yeah. tropes are about literary Gino figures, Diaz. you know, fictional Gino characters. Diaz. This is one that we 
Say it again. Juno Diaz. Juno Diaz. But, but this is one that seems to be reflected in real life. At first, I thought disproportionately. Jed made a good point, though, when we were chatting about this the other day, which is that there's actually a whole big swath of film and culture that celebrates these characters. Right. Which is that, you know, it, it actually kind of comes back around to, to Jen's common theme of tropes. These may not be fictional tropes, but they sure as shit are, are, are tropes and a, yeah. a model and a template for film and a template for biography. The Doors movie, the Jackson Pollock film with Ed Harris, yeah. Rodigliani, right? I mean, Sid and Nancy. I'm old, so those are my examples. But there's, there's, there's a ton <laughs> of notions of Jason's where we, we nominally <laughs> celebrate the destructive male genius. Yeah. And, and I was actually saying, uh, in addition to that, all of that, which is totally legit, I was also saying that, yes, these are real men, but you were talking about biopics, I think, in particular, because you were talking about movies when we were talking about this subtrope yeah, the other day. And I was like, well, yeah, they're biopics, but then these real men have become characters then. Like, we don't know who Van Gogh really was. We know the character Van Gogh, though, real well. Yeah, because right? we have to take into account know... that, that any time we take a real person and we then, not directly, not intentionally, not purposefully fictionalize them, we, we archetype them. Hemingway yeah, is you, an archetype, we, you know. We legendarize them. Fitzgerald is an... Legendize them? Legendize them, Legendize them. We mythologize them. That's the word you're looking for. We mythologize them. We, and and yes. by mythologizing them, we turn them into archetypes. And Thank by, you. By becoming, that's, that's what I'm here for. I have, okay. I recently, I recently, I recently decided to describe myself, you know, as like, I drink and I know things, which is a ripoff from, from the, Tyrion the Tyrion thing, thing yeah. because I really am a midget. So that's wrong. We're going to get mail. You're 6'2". Six two. You're 6'2". Six 6'1". Six and I'm shrinking. I'm actually... Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm shrinking. I, I want to know I about your shrinkage. I'm uh, shrinking in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's just because I'm here. <laughs> but my point is they are still tropes, even though they're real men. Right. Because yeah, they, they've made they them into characters. They occupy cultural space as fictional characters. They, yes. They, they function in our culture in the same way. Right. Just yes. like Napoleon is is a good shorthand for short men with huge egos, you know. Short man syndrome, yeah. Short man Napoleon syndrome, yeah. yeah well, when exactly. you mentioned this, the male genius, um, the first, like, fictional example that popped into my mind, I don't think he is as maybe as toxic and destructive as some of the other ones, was, was the, um, the BBC Sherlock Holmes um, so I think he could maybe possibly yeah. be an example of that subtrope, possibly. Um, because, I mean, like the he, one with Cumberbatch, yeah, yeah, the one with Benedict Cumberbatch, um, where you know he's not he's not as toxic, but he is you know very like rude and short and antisocial and all of these other things. Um, but he's everybody kind of forgives that yeah, because he's, he's this genius, yeah. Yeah. right? And so and so. Yeah, so I'm wondering if maybe he fits into that subject because we mentioned all these real examples. I'm like, well, what are some fictional film examples of yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you, you've struck a nerve there, if you if you don't yet know, because Jen is actually a major Holmes scholar. Oh, oh my goodness, I didn't know. Oh, crap. A ton about all of the, the Holmes Oh, dear. Sort of, okay, Jen, well, I, I'm sorry. Jen, you, 
<laughs> you should comment on that because, well, you know, I'm, Sherlock yeah. is, is never a sexual predator. No, but no. But there is something there as far as the license he's granted for poor behavior. Yeah. Right. That's what I was, I was just, just thinking that like, too, yeah. yeah. So that's just and like the first in the thing BBC that left to mind. iteration of a, the, the Cumberbitch one, um, <laughs> like I think even Watson says to Lestrade in the very first episode, doesn't he? Oh, here I am being the nerd. Hi, thank you for calling me out on that. Um, I think it was in the first episode. <laughs> I Watson did not turned, say nerd. Turned I said to scholar. Lestrade. You said scholar. Nerd, <laughs> scholar. What's the fucking difference? Um, <laughs> he, actually, Watson just at the crime scene turns to Lestrade and goes, why do you deal with him? I think because right. Sherlock just did all the deducing and then left. And he's like, oh, he's just gone. Great. Awesome. How am I going to get home? And he's like, Lestrade, why did, why do you, so why do you deal with him? Lestrade goes, because he's the best. And I need him. He goes, God, he says, God help me. Afterwards, I mean, and he, but, he know, does yeah, hurt exactly Watson right. terribly over and over and over again in that series, you know, and you can see mm-hmm. that. Um, so, But he also pinpoints it too. He's like, Watson, you're a total drama addict right no you need to follow me and watson's like god damn it you're right <laughs> that's, but you that's know. true and but and, yeah and no, yet right. there's that episode sort of... where holmes admits he's an asshole the whole wedding episode yeah right he acknowledges that's the difference between holmes and bond is holmes like says yeah right. i'm a privileged special douchey asshole well and he says that and he also he's saying that in the context of thanking watson for being such a good friend he's saying right. that in in the context of going i can't believe he even asked me to be his best man and then i thought about it and i thought oh shit i am his best friend oh my god i've never had a best friend and so that this is his whole context for that remark about so, being able so to see himself so yeah and you're right james bond would never have that kind of a he would never get married well he did once but then she died so then that was the end of that so he didn't have to deal with that but you know what i mean like that's not a situation bond would ever find himself in so yeah maybe this is sort of a less toxic version of the sort of genius that's um <laughs> thank you for sharing jason um oh that sort of genius that's that's allowed to kind of do some fucked up shit yeah in order to like the ends the ends justifies the means in this case it's a lot less destructive and a lot right more no i just helpful. said that's like so that's the first example i thought of um because i was just trying to think of fictional that's more fictional examples so well jason should we should we actually wind up well, we don't have to wind up because I think there's more we could go on, but it seems like everybody kind of needs to take a pee break. Yeah, let's, okay, let's, no, take a, let's take a bio and refill break, and then we'll – let's see if we can kind of bring it home. This is fun. It is. It is fun. Well, I listened to the problematic badass female tropes. I told Jason, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, you guys sound just like graduate school. It makes me miss graduate school so much. <laughs> <laughs> so no this is i mean same thing i just miss talking about stuff like this you know yeah Um, personally i i work in a very sort of kind of anti-intellectual milieu you know i work with all these kind of software startupy you know hustler kind of people in my day-to-day life who are smart people but it's kind of like you want to talk about you know Pausing to explore a difficult subject is not a thing that happens in my normal world. So it's really, really cool and refreshing. I mean, I wouldn't call my inner (laughs) I wouldn't call my environment anti-intellectual, but it certainly feels like it sometimes. You're trying to talk to some of these high schoolers and 
All they can think about no, is, no. I don't know. I can't wear these paint clothes because there might be cute boys in the hall. I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is yeah. this is nice. And um, my thesis was about film. So it's kind of fun to talk about film again. And I really, oh, missed, what was it I about? really miss that. Um, it was kind of about it was about the, you know, feminist and body and certain films. And it had some transgender mm-hmm. type um, some things in it. And um, yeah, I can't I can't even remember what it was called. Something, something feminist bodies something something <laughs> it was a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> this is a great thing to come back to something something feminist, <laughs> something, something feminist bodies something fucking that, perfect that'd be the title of, of, of one episode and can i be in that episode yes know, please what, what that would be great of something something feminist bodies yes <laughs> <laughs> something something dark side something something feminist bodies the, the, the really bad thing about um, the wonderful thing about graduate school is it helped me so much and I felt so much more, you know, aware of everything. And then it just kind of all went away after I finished my degree. And right. I'm just like trapped. <laughs> I'm trapped in high school world. And I don't know how to spell anymore. And I don't know how to well, talk about things yeah. anymore. And I and it's just, yeah. You get kinda, paid better than me. I'm an adjunct sad. professor. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean that's a tough well, that's a tough gig. So yeah, you know, yeah. in my uh, in in my life, so in my in my work environment, I work with one other gentleman who has he has a PhD in philosophy, very very brilliant guy, but he is a uh, he is also a Pentecostal theologian. Mm. So we couldn't be further apart on every aspect of pretty much everything. He's actually a lovely human being. Other than Jen, that is my intellectual companionship. Yeah. It's a hardcore evangelical young earth creationist theologian with a PhD in philosophy. So I, I feel you. It's it's the struggle is real. How does he get a PhD in philosophy and still be a young earth? What? How, what? I, I, I think he tickled the contrarian uh, impulses of the philosophy department because he actually did go to a non you know um skype cut out so all i got was tickled the cunt and i just <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need you wanted more i just wanted to be know that i did not get that so i don't know where that's come from <laughs> we're, we're still on video we're not no, going to do that it's actually, it's actually right? I, I said I said, tickle the contrarian impulses. Oh, the contrarian. So that the <laughs> right. For some reason. You know what? You know what? On Jason Watch Show, we put the cunt and contrarian. <laughs> As well it should be. I... Even though we're not recording right now, that's still the title of this episode is Tickling oh, no. the Cunt. <laughs> we're recording. Don't worry. Oh, we are. Okay. No, my, my career is over, just to be clear. Yeah, this is- okay. Good. No, no. I think it's going to advance after this. <laughs> going leaps and bounds. Okay. So, hey, where were we? I miss Where you, indeed? Jeez. Well, so so I I think we've teased out a couple of really interesting things, and I and I I'm I'm zeroing in on two at the stage. You know, we we've been talking the last few minutes a lot about kind of self awareness, right? And right. this does Bond have self awareness? Self awareness, yeah. Self awareness, and we've talked a lot about Bond as an instrument of of a, a power structure. Bond as a, a being part and parcel, kind of a means to an end. Um, and intention, you know, the, not just the violence, swathes of violence, but the intention behind them. 
Right. So, I mean, I, I think actually this is, you know, again, like I, Jen, when I read your work, I, I always get really enthralled by the idea of kind of the bait and switch, right? What is the trope the superficially promise versus what does the trope actually deliver? And with mm-hmm. Bond, you know, there's a superficial promise of, you know, a gentleman, a suave guy, a lady killer in both senses of the word, <laughs> you know, the, the super competent, uh, you know, violent and, and sexually competent uh, alpha male kind of character as, as the, the sort of offering. This debate, right? The switch almost is uh, Bond is actually a weapon. Bond is a, a tool. Monster. Bond is a soldier. Not, yes, a monster, but also Bond is fundamentally, he's, he's a device that is used by something that he doesn't actually control, right? He's True. Yes. in the service yeah. of the state, in the service of a dominant ideology. He may be, he may or may not even really be meaningfully capable of self-awareness as a character. He's an instrument of something else. And if you, again, if you think of this in sort of nefarious terms as, you know, again, myself, the 13-year-old sitting on a couch being indoctrinated <laughs> in 1986 or 87, right? What am I <sighs> Which is, yeah, you could be a badass, you could be a warrior, you could be all these wonderful things. All you need to sacrifice is your autonomy, your self-awareness, your... Right. Uh, your independent morality. I mean, that's, mm. that's an interesting idea. That's fascinating. I like how you tied it up really prettily like that. All you have to do is sacrifice your entire mor- morality, like your entire moral autonomy well, in order that, to be this kind of a badass. That is the, the bargain that men make for patriarchy is that that's we true. get all of this power. We get mm. all of this prestige but we are also the primary source of cannon fodder for combat. True, true. We are the ones that get thrown, you know, yes, they're the entirety of, of World War II narrative mythology is about straight white men going off to fight this fascist scourge, right? Right, we, right. And... And the reward for being able to, for for being willing to sacrifice ourselves to take on the Nazi hordes or the weird, you know, disgusting Japanese, you know, that the propaganda says these people are, is that we get to be at the top of the social order. You get because, to be a man. Right. And that is the whole point behind all of this. We... Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so strange that men were so defensive about allowing women into combat in the last – because this has been a big conversation in the last 30 to 40 sure. years. Yeah. Women in combat. Yeah. Well, this is the sacred place for men. Combat, it's mm-hmm. not only where we sacrifice ourselves in order to become the the top of the, of the patriarchal food chain, but combat is also the one place – where men get to be fully human. And we talked about we were talking about this okay. uh, last time. We were talking because about this on you Wednesday. Because you have that, that picture that always has struck me from the Korean War, where you have the medic cradling the other soldier who's just lost his friend. And you have the one soldier there who's – and it's this very maternal type of cradling pose. I'm sure, Paul, you've seen this picture. You know, yeah, this one soldier just clutching the, the tunic of the other soldier, crying and grieving, and the other one's holding him very mother-like, you know, one mm-hmm. hand on the head, one hand, you know, around the waist, yeah. cradling it's an him. iconic photo. And yeah. 
men are only allowed to f- express and and engage in and, and act upon the full range of human emotions in combat. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the the idea of women engaging in combat, that's a threat to men in the one space where they get to be fully human. That is a very, very – that's a very powerful idea. No, absolutely. You know, I, it's a, it's a funny thing. I'll, I'll I'll risk going on maybe a, a hint of a of a tangent, but but if I can, oh, we never do idea, tangents on this uh, podcast. Never, never <laughs> do tangents. I have no. never heard a tangent. Never. I, I I actually was I was in this conversation today, and I I showed this photograph, and Jason, I'll share it with you. I'm going to hold it up to the camera. I don't know if you can actually see it, but this is my favorite photo of myself, and. I, I where did you get that? I found myself in conversation about it, and, and then for for those listening, that the photo is of me, and it, it is actually me on on literally a, a special forces uh, training range somewhere in the southern United States. I actually can't talk about why I was there, uh, but it's me holding a, a an AK forty seven with a shit eating grin on my face, and. And I, I love this photo for the purely unironic reason that it is the most badass photo of myself that I actually possess. <laughs> and I'd love to say that I love it for all these complex, you know, ironic reasons and that it's heavily nuanced. All these things. No, absolutely not. I've never looked that fucking cool by <laughs> our cultural standards, right? It's actually me standing there with a real life full lotto AK-47 right. looking extremely pleased with myself. And <laughs> it, it really, you know, I... I I, I bring it up just from the standpoint that when we're talking about bond, when we're talking about, you know, the, the, the sort of mythos of the warrior in our culture, when we're talking about the role of combat and male identity and the possibility for males, you know, self-realization, right. we, we live in a martial culture, right? We live in a very, oh, very much society. so, very much. And, so. and this, this is what's kind of offered to us as men. So I, you know, I have this goofball photo of myself, dude, I was there selling some shit to some guys who didn't buy it. Right. It, it, that's it, it. There was nothing. I, I wasn't, you know, about to go rescue some hostages or anything like that. But I still adore this photo because it is it is a touch point of myself with this thing that's actually inaccessible to me as a man. Uh, yeah, right. Which I think is what James Bond is, which I think is what a lot of these, you know, the, these Navy SEAL guys on YouTube are, you know, that right. that, that sort of warrior, warrior mythos is something it's very hard for us to access meaningfully today. Sure. Yeah, right. The idea that you might have to sacrifice some fundamental things to get there. I don't know, man. I think a lot of us, you know, the, the, those trade-offs don't seem so crazy. And that's the thing about, I think, why we take such a left turn with these masculinity tropes that we didn't take with the f- with the feminine tropes is that the real life repercussions. Of right. Them. Because, f- yeah, what you what we have through patriarchy asked of men is. I used to always get in trouble with my feminist women friends. And the book is not readily handy to me, um, but it was uh, Sam Keen's book from the early 90s, Fire in the Belly. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting beaten up by a lot of young feminists because of something that's, that's, that Sam Keen said in this book. He says that 
now to qualify this i want to understand, i want to i want to acknowledge the fact that i realize that rape is is for women both as a a psychological possibility and threat and a reality is probably much more practical than what men experience but the same principle the same dynamic applies it's particularly okay prior to 1971 when they abolished the draft, right? But combat, being a battlefield sacrifice, is the same kind of violation of of a man's sense of of personal physical autonomy in his own body as rape is Mm. to women, right? We are, are, our bodies... Combat violates the male body in the same way that rape violates the women's body. Does that make hmm. sense? Now, I see what you're going for there. And I, I, as a middle-aged white man, <laughs> but, but no, I, yeah, it, it is it is issue of the autonomy of the body by a power that you do not control. Right, right. If I'm understanding. If I'm on the right there. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm getting from it too. We have men, we as men in this patriarchal society, we have agreed that our privilege comes at the willingness to sacrifice, to to let the state control when our body will be destroyed, crippled, maimed, violated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we decided we're going to fight this political war and you, the dudes... Are going to go okay, and rape is 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 some dude has decided that this woman's going to, you know, provide him, you know, um, a sense of his own power, a sense of his own control, a sense of his own, you know, sexual fulfillment. All this myriad of things that rape represents. That's this controlling power coming in and forcing itself upon the woman. Well, combat war when it's state-sponsored, is the state coming in and saying to the man, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It's no longer yours. It's no longer yours. It's ours to achieve this goal, whatever we decide it is. And that's what rape is when it happens to women. Some guy has come in and said, whatever I have to prove to myself, to the world, to society, I'm going to prove it by violating her body. And the state says, well, whatever I want, oil, land, you know, power, control, whatever. I'm going to prove it, and I'm going to take your body, man, dude, Paul, Jason, and I'm going to fucking throw it into a meat grinder. You're going to lose a leg, an eye, an arm, your testicles, whatever the fuck. You're going to suffer extreme physical pain for my eh, monetary gain. Well, that just got dark. <laughs> yeah, it really dark. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But, but hang on. I, I want to bring that to back to Bond in, a, in what I think is actually a really interesting way. And Jed, I, I'd love to hear you weigh in on this one. So yeah, here's I'm, something really, I'm, really I'm pivotal like, about that. My jaw's dropping. Because right when we think about <laughs> when we think about the draft pre-1971, and Jason, mm-hmm. I agree with you, or even more so when we think about the volunteer military that we've had in the United States ever since then. Yeah. Right. We're talk we're starting to talk now about class. We're starting to talk now about socioeconomic strata as a dimension of the control that you have and can expect to have over your own physical body. Right. Now, let's consider Bond Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with some interesting wrinkles in the later Daniel Craig films where this is played with a little bit. Yes. But we all 
always have the sense that Bond is, if not upper class, at least competent in the esoterica of British upper class functioning. Myself, coming from a family that is very tied into a British culture, that's no small thing to affect if you're not part of that, you know, by long heritage. So does, let, let me pose a question here. Is part of the fantasy of the Bond character the notion that you can be part of the sacrifice of the body to the state and yet also be part of an upper class strata and identity? Is Bond synthesizing two things in a fantasy domain that do not exist in real life? Is yes. that part of the bait and switch of the trope? Okay, I, yeah, I want to answer this. This is fantastic because that is one thing that we didn't talk about as far as my article goes, which is the classism issue. Right. And what you're saying, Jason, I think is very important. And I can see the parallel there, but I think that you're right, Paul, in that there is a certain immunity that class behests onto certain oh, yeah. people. And uh, so uh, certain uh, people don't have to deal with that. Huh? Which which is why Jeffrey Epstein gets away with raping young girls and the guy in the trailer park doesn't. Well, well yeah. And why Donald Trump gets exempted from Vietnam service and, you know, Tyrone Jackson from Brooklyn doesn't, right? I right, mean, this, right. This extends across infinite dimensions. And so does does James Bond then represent being able to have your cake and rape it too? Which is another... <laughs> Version of the title of this. Have your, oh, cake. oh, this have is the name. Cake have your cake and rape you. it too. Yeah. Yikes! No, but you know what but I'm also saying. Awesome. Like, is this is is that what what we is this? Okay, so th we started off. Oh my God, I'm bringing this whole thing back around. <laughs> Everyone, pat me on the back real quick. Um, You're drunk so and an intellectual. We started. We started out. Always been that way. You've known me for 20 years. Um, so we started out by asking, why is it we like James Bond so much? Why? And okay. we weren't really, we, we started to try and talk about a lot of different facets of what makes James Bond, James Bond and all the ways he's evolved through the eras and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know that we've really answered that question yet. Why do we all still like Bond? Why is Bond still hot? Why am I still a fan of James Bond? And it has a little bit to do, Kathleen, with that little tiny swimsuit. I'm not made of stone. Apparently his abs are, but that's Absolutely. not really Craig's why. Abs. Oh my God. That's her, you know, Hey, I'm going to, yeah, I'll watch that. Butter. I'm glad that that scene was in slow motion, but that's not really, I mean, that's only one tiny part of why it's probably not that tiny, but it's, it's only one tiny part of why we all still like James Bond. <laughs> I, I, I do a lot of conscience here for you. you know, <laughs> no, you're, you're beautiful. It's not bad. You. You're beautiful. It could be I love you. You are. Um, but I think that we probably in that last sort of summarizing, Paul, I think you hit on the answer, which is I think that we all admire and or want to bone James Bond, which is the, the version of the admiration we're supposed to have right as women. Because he has that kind of best of both worlds aspect, yes. right? He I has that heroic that. I will I will sacrifice myself for the good of Queen and Country. And he has that sort of like, sort of that, that, that holy sacrificial almost, you know, we can even get religious about this whole thing, about the, the sacrificing yourself to the good of the, of the people. But he doesn't have to because he is upper class. And in the novels, it's, it's, you know, there's this whole lineage that he comes from and all this kind of stuff. He comes from this sort of Scottish branch of a noble family and all this kind of stuff. So he does have aristocratic 
blood in his veins. So he is high class enough. And that's why he gets all these skills, all this knowledge of brandy, like in Goldfinger, all this stuff that he brags about, all this white male privilege of being able to you know, waltz into Jill Soames bedroom and right. basically rape her with no one saying anything about it. And he has all the, all these advantages about that because he has this high class, mm-hmm. but he also has the other of I'm sacrificing myself. I am, I am beating myself up literally and figuratively. I'm and I'm offering myself I'm wreaking up as this a field sacrifice for the society. I am offering myself up, but he doesn't actually have to be destroyed because he is too high class for that. Well, it's also just the fact that he escapes propels the fantasy that if we are the right combination of 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 intelligent brilliant vicious we can escape any punishment or repercussion for or risk really (laughs) even of of what would destroy a normal person of either class right so he has the sort of superhero thing of having both the best of both worlds and that's why he is this character that we're all supposed to admire so much because he, he does both. Well, and I think that for women, the appeal, I think the cherry on top of the, the rape cake here is that um, his, <laughs> his unattainability, right? Because nothing is so attractive right. to women as unattainability. And, and yet we're supposed to kind of believe that you know, we might be the one that could possibly attain this person. You know, and I think that that's part of the appeal. That's why my mom was willing to sacrifice her life to sleep with Sean Connery as James Bond is because that's part of the myth. And part of the appeal for women is that he he seems like he can't be gotten. But but maybe just maybe he can be gotten by, by the right person. Yeah. The, if you're special right. enough, then you could you well, could it, attain him. Yeah. And, Except, and that's no, you can't. all the time with the character. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That that's gotta be part of the it. woman that's about to totally change him, although it right, never quite exactly. Ends. And then yeah. she dies. I'd like to state for the record that, that my mother was erotically fixated on Rutger Hauer, and I don't know what that explains about her as a person. But <laughs> I find that wow. disturbing. <laughs> My mom, like, no, I'm not. Well, I, I actually made Jason speechless. So I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> well, it was the Rutger Hauer thing because I adore Rutger Hauer, who died recently. So not no as much story. as my mom. Lady Hawk is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. <sighs> Lady Hawk is a great film. <sighs> Jen just recently had me watch Lady Hawk, and I was, I was Kathy, transfixed. Wait, say that out loud. I don't think I've seen it. Yes. <laughs> It's okay. I saw it what three weeks ago for the first. Yeah, time like like last month. Oh, yeah, I know. I can't believe I that we're sitting here in a room of four oh. people of the same generation, and you haven't seen Lady Hawk. I haven't seen Lady Hawk. He I'm he gonna, didn't see it until like that. last month, so don't feel bad. But I'm also go see it like oh, immediately. I don't feel bad. <laughs> there's there's but, I, no, I will, I, will, I have some weird will, gaps in my eighties movies of viewing. No, for, I do too. For I do reason. too. That was the Jesus marriage that fucked you up. I've been filling them oh, in. Oh, the Jesus marriage. Yeah, I had a Jesus marriage that Jason calls it the Jesus marriage that, I, that fucked me up. So. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, no, oh. it's tragic. That's, that's, that's a whole other trip, I think. Yeah, the okay. The Jesus marriage. <laughs> and then our next right, so, episode, our next episode of the podcast is us just doing like a live, like Riff Tracks-esque thing to Lady Hawk. So anyway. <laughs> 
what to conclude about right. this one. Oh. So no, I, I I think we've hit a bunch of actually. I, I actually think we've unpacked this one pretty well. If I might, we if really I might, so, yeah, no, we've done right. Well. I mean, I let me. I'll bring it back for myself. To, to the place where I, I'll, I'll kind of conclude it from my standpoint, which is, again, my 13-year-old self on the really yes. cheesy 80s couch in Same the trailer the couch. in North Baltimore watching James Bond with my nascent trying to grow my mullet. It wasn't even in at that point. Oh, that's right. Your mullet wasn't until I met you. Right. You but I, but I, think, I think we've hit the major themes, it right? It is really the, you know, the, the, the promise of James Bond as this powerful figure the promise of James Bond is this kind of, you know, noble warrior, right. this upper class guy, this mm-hmm. endless sophisticated noble warrior. The reality of James Bond that was being offered to me and to my friends, a lot of whom went and then did enlist and did sign up being, mm-hmm. you know, hey, this is what you can go and be. The reality being so very different. We lived in trailers. James Bond isn't a real person. There weren't real guys like him yeah. coming into military service. working the That's not how it actually works. The, the vulnerability that we were, many of us, and I myself, you know, I, mean, I, I hadn't, Jen knows the story. I was going to sign, I was going to join the army. I had all, you know, the guy was coming down, the, the, the recruiter didn't show up at my counselor's office on the particular time. He got his schedule confused and I thought better of it. And only for that reason did I not go into the military. Wow. When I was, right. But that's what you did when you came from the trailer park, yeah, right? right? I mean, that was the judge. Right. Well, yeah, but that was the, the lifeline boys. to get out. Right. Yeah. For the boys. That was the lifeline yeah. to get out. Right. That, and and it was the lifeline to heroism. It was the lifeline to James Bond. Everybody knew yeah. James Bond was a, was an SAS guy. So anyway, I, I I think that bait and switch aspect has become really clear. I think James Bond is a synthesis of things that don't actually go together in real life. That's not really chocolate and peanut butter, peanut butter to be an upper class guy, and you know place your body in the service of the state. And again, I'm right. not speaking into a conspiracy theory, but I think if we sort of think about power justifying itself, ideology creating narratives that ju- that self-justify, um, I don't, I wouldn't put that past Ian Fleming and the gang to have been wittingly or unwittingly oh, part of the sure. tradition. Well, and it's not really a conspiracy theory. I mean, we're seeing all of the power structures around Hollywood being crumbled as we speak. So, like, it, I wouldn't say it's it's, it's, it's really that function. paranoid. It's like it's definitely there for sure. And that, I don't think that bait and switch is necessarily even not conscious at all. It's probably mm-hmm. quite quite structured and quite deliberate. Yeah. Right. And here's something excellent that I I think that we not only as a culture but specifically as men do ourselves a disservice if we think that previous generations of, of, of artistic, creative, thoughtful, intelligent, intellectual men did not see and recognize the double bind of their own existence. Because what this reminds me of is, is something that I discovered as an undergrad and when I was at K-State. And I was taking um, kind of two classes at the same time and also reading some interesting stuff outside of class. So my, my sophomore year, I was taking a philosophy of feminism course. I was also taking my first survey course of, of American literature, which covered um, the modernist, including Hemingway. And outside mm-hmm. of classwork, I was reading Sam Keen's book, Fire in the Belly. So hmm. I was taking philosophy of feminism, and I was 
in that class, I had a, I had a situation similar to the story you talk about in Go Big or Go Home, where um, you're asked to speak to your experience and are shut down for it. I used to criticize that professor for for thinking that the best way to remedy the gender inequality in in America was to flip the ladder. Yeah. Right. But no, what she was doing, I think, at the time was providing a very stark and challenging lesson in that moment. She was teaching a class on feminism. And so her role, whether I agreed with it or felt violated or not, that was the fucking point. Right. So she had to treat the men in that class as if they were women and the women as if they were men and assign a grades appropriately, right? So here I was, a white guy taking that philosophy of feminism course, and I, throughout the entire class, tried to balance and rationalize and, you know, oh, yes, yes, feminism, but what about this and what about that? And so I got a C for the entire course. My friend Ron, who took the same class with me at the same damn time, he was like, oh, I get it. And so his first paper... He handed in, he wrote completely in support of Freud in this whole patriarchal structure. And as the class progressed, every paper he wrote got progressively more feminist. He got an A. (laughs) (laughs) Right? He, He manipulated the system. I did not. At the same time, I was taking this American survey course of American literature. And I had a professor who was a male, but a feminist critic. And so he always, he had a reputation of always taking vacation during the week that they discussed Hemingway. <laughs> because Hemingway was like the antithesis of, of feminist literary criticism. And so kind of, and at the, so at the same time I was reading Sam Keane. So to kind of spite my professor, my big final paper for his class was to take Hemingway's story, Fathers and Sons, and reframe it as a a challenge to traditional patriarchal masculinity and i've i've found that because because of that because of this, the things that paul has pointed out here is that when you look back at at hemingway you look back at previous male writers who we still value who we still argue about philosophers and stuff like this, even though that sometimes their language may seem sexist, we have to remember that being a a male in a patriarchal male society puts you in a very confined, tight, narrow box. And we've talked about this before, about how when people try to argue for gender equality, they still end up arguing in gendered language, which kind of defeats their intent. We have this whole problem if we look back historically. So that's, this is why fiction is more important than nonfiction at times, because you can take a look at writers like Hemingway, and if you read him in a nonfiction sense, his language is entirely sexist. He entirely embodies exactly what feminists hate about him. But if you read his fiction metaphorically, Every piece of his fiction metaphorically challenges the male stereotype. 
His male characters are crippled, they're weak, they're vulnerable, they're sensitive, and they're struggling to fit themselves into the male archetype and failing. Nick Adams, that moment in Fathers and Sons, he that whole arc of that story is him looking at his relationship to his father and saying, I was embarrassed and ashamed to have given my father's to have received my father's hand-me-down underwear. And I buried it under a rock because I was ashamed of it. My father found it. He punished me for it. And so what did I do as Nick Adams? I hid, I hid in the outhouse with a shotgun, imagining killing my father. And then you juxtapose that to Nick Adams in that story, Fathers and Sons, driving in the car with his son sleeping on the bench seat next to him, and his entire perception of his son not being a good shot, not being a good hunter, has softened incredibly. He is being more gentle and more compassionate, only by degrees, yes, only by a small degree. But there is a progression. And when we criticize Hemingway for being a sexist asshole, we don't take into account that he's written a story that says, no, no. We've taken a baby step towards something different. So in an extra step of conclusion, then, do you feel like in order to deal with these tropes in a healthy way, we should be looking at and also creating new works in a more Absolutely. sort of symbolic way and not just taking it as face value and not creating things that are that shallow either. Oh, absolutely. That's why we, that's why it's important to us to take a look at the different representations of Bond between the 60s, which was Sean Connery, the 70s, which was Roger Moore, and the early 80s, Roger Moore, late 80s, Timothy Dalton, 90s and early 2000s is Pierce Brosnan. And then you have Daniel Craig. What's going to happen now if we make James Bond, if we cast Idris Elba as James Bond? How's that going to change our perception of the – because Bond is supposed yeah. to be the ultimate male, right? He's supposed to be the ultimate man, what men are supposed to a, a, aspire to, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what happens right. if we make him a black man? What happens if, oh no, the next Bond is a woman? How does that mm. how does that slow progression change? Because we had mentioned this before about, you know, fiction being a reflection of current society. But the entire argument that I've been making, Jen, that we've been having in these drunken conversations for 20 years is that not only is fiction a, <laughs> a reflection of, of current society, it's a projection into the future of what society can become. That too. We, yeah. We write the world that we want to live in. Yes. Yeah. There, there's almost kind of a sinister way to think about that, right? I mean, if we think about Bond as an assertion, ultimately, of state control over the white male body disguised as something else, there is something not so nice about that being extended to Idris Elba. There's something about that that's not so nice about that being extended to a female character. You know, I, I think it becomes very important at that point to consider what Bond is and what the message of Bond is. If we extend the definition of what Bond can be to people of color, to women, that's an interesting thought. And it's going to be up to the creators to be able to deal with all the nuances of what that is going to then 
mean and be. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of if, if Bond's purpose is about creating sort of a mask for the require, you know, requiring self-sacrifice, self-abnegation in the service of a state entity, in the service of an ideological power structure, beginning to expand that outside of the traditional mode of the white male, that's not necessarily positive. Oh, exactly. No, not at all. Oh, exactly. Um, this whole time, and I've been thinking about antidotes to um, the bond. We were talking about antidotes, and um, mm-hmm. I get drunker far faster than any of you people. So I don't, I don't know how yeah, this is going to come out. Um, but I've I've been thinking continually of a film called The American. Uh, George Clooney was in it. It's 2010. Do you guys know that movie at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I saw it. Yeah. So I feel like he's. He's this assassin. He's on one last job. And um, I feel like he might be one of the anecdotal um, uh, James Bond characters where he's he's on this last job. He doesn't want to do it. He's very thoughtful. He gets involved with this prostitute. Um, and he um, one of the things that struck me about the movie is that, you know, rather than doing the usual James Bond, like love him and leave him, he's this very a very considerate lover to this prostitute. And um, while I was watching this movie, I was thinking of Bond continually and thinking about Mm -hmm. how this is kind of like a very non-Bond type character. Um, And I was also thinking about the curse of self-awareness because I've begun to think of that as a curse now. Um, (laughs) I don't know if anybody, I don't know if anybody else does, but like, I'm, I I feel like I'm a fairly self-aware person and I see that, like, I feel like my school is inhabited with like many James Bond type teachers. Like they don't murder or, or anything like that, but they might as well, because it's just as bad. They, (laughs) they probably do, but they like the people who are the least self-aware just get away with everything everything Mm. and the people who follow the rules like just don't and um and so i i'm like a rule follower like even when i'm not a rule follower and i break the rules i'm still it turns out that i'm still following the rules you know um so so even when i'm a rebel i'm not a rebel um and it's so disappointing but i was thinking that that's got to be part of the reason why we love james bond because he does not he is not cursed with self-awareness he he is not oh. bothered oh, by okay. it. Awesome. He gets to do whatever he wants and he gets away with it. And we and the people who are self-aware just love it because we're like, yeah. yes, why can't I be that right. person that gets yeah, away with everything? It's a but I can't mm-hmm. because I'm cursed mm-hmm. with this conscious and the self-awareness and yeah, it totally yeah. sucks. Yeah. So that's actually a killer point. That's that, killer, that's that, so I've been thinking about point. that this whole time. And um, that's what George Clooney and as this character, the American is kind of cursed with in that film. So I've just kind of been thinking about that. That's really interesting, too, because that's exactly how it manifests in Bond with the whole like little snappy one liners after the guy's dead. You know, like he 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 electroshocks the villain and he's like shocking. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really care. No, he it's doesn't care. And, I, and you're right. And I think we and like that. I think we like, I think we wish uh, people who are self-aware wish we could be that. Although right, I think there's a we're lot. Like, oh, I would feel so bad, right? I feel like most people are not self-aware at all. I've come to that conclusion as right. 
You know, as time has gone by. That's I, totally Oh my God, I know, no, right? No, come, yeah, come work with me for a couple of weeks. I have Jesus the most fine. twisty view of <laughs> humanity ever because I teach, I teach high school. So there you go. But, but Bond represents the, the unself-aware person who still ends up doing something beneficial that the self-aware person would want to have done. Oh right. yeah, well he saved right. the world. I mean, yeah. the self-aware person would worlds. want would want the villain to be thwarted, would want the world to be right. saved, would want order to be restored, would but want to get laid, would want to get laid along the way. Along yeah. the way, sure. I mean, sure, I'm, but, I'm but, but not so much, yeah. not so much, not so much in the rapey court of to kiss him until they agree type of thing. No, but, but you know still, what I mean. it's like, right? like the, the self-aware <laughs> person is like going, "I'm a decent person, and I've been nice to you. Why wouldn't you?" Yeah. Yeah, but I he never sound... has to worry about being a decent person. He never has that's to what, worry about saying, any of that. Yeah. He's not cursed yeah. with that. Right. I sounded like an incel there for a moment. I'm sorry. It no, he it doesn't have to worry in... about it. <laughs> he doesn't have to worry about it. That would be so cool. I, I'm so yeah, jealous of all the teachers who don't have to worry about being decent. It's it's awesome. <laughs> 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 At some point in here, I want to re-engage Jason on Hemingway, but I don't want to. I don't want to totally fuck up the thread of the Bond thing. I think we're sort of we're, we're kind of bringing it down. I think we've had like right. at least three conclusions. I think Heather can work yeah. with right. any number. There's, of there's lots of stuff. We've, we've about. got two hours worth of material so far. Yeah, we're fine. So so yeah, if you want to engage about Hemingway, you get engaged about Hemingway. Do we? Yeah. Is it? Is I it think time we're good. That, I think we have enough. We we have enough for the show. Yeah. Oh, we, plenty. You're the producer. Do you guys, do you guys feel okay? I feel oh, good. Absolutely. I, I feel we I have mean, like more than enough. We I have like we three conclusions. For, for we have a, new, new insights. And I, new think, I think, I think the bond fantastic. <laughs> I just want to tell you that I haven't talked to real adults for like two weeks and this has been oh, so exciting. Hi. <laughs> hi, real adults. We're all drinking wine. We're all real adults here. <laughs> I feel like we could go on on this particular we topic because because the totally bond, because oh, this is a rich vein it is because the bond <laughs> trope is kind of like the halfway point between all of our tropes That's right and when we get That's to right. we get to number seven we're we're going to be able to loop back to bond and a bunch of other yes. stuff like that yeah um we'll talk about every one of them in the seventh one for sure right because yeah. violence be cool if you would join me with that one actually hey now you're on skype and doing this you could just join whenever no, we can have we can drag anybody I need to that's locally here and and have them sit with me. All the big brains that we know. All the big brains. Big brains. But I like big brains. So I think I, I think lie. for the sake of, of of Heather, who's going to have to listen to two hours <laughs> of us babbling and getting drunk. She is going to love yeah. it. Oh my gosh. Maybe this is like uh, this is like cultural criticism meets drunk history. It's actually yes, pretty yes. <laughs> Thank you, my love. Yes. So yeah, send this to all your friends. Thank you. Oh my God, drunk history. I love drunk history. This is exactly what we're doing, Jason. We're doing like drunk literature, <laughs> drunk drunk media. I can yeah. see why you triumphed all over all of your um, other graduate compatriots because I I am pretty drunk and i just nobody could out drink you guys nobody no we we almost <laughs> killed our poor friend he was not looking good i don't know and if paul's drinking or not paul seems, seems really like very um 
Well, Paul's been hanging out with Jen. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm on. I'm on stride. Right now. Oh, you're playing okay. this on me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're assuming. Well, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is that you know me. You know you, me. Yeah. You and Paul have known each other longer than Kathleen and I have known each other. That so, is true. And, true. and Kathleen, being than... a high school teacher, I haven't been able yeah. to corrupt her quite as much. I was yeah. corrupted before you got here. I teach high school. Sex. What else? What other corruption do you want? This is corruption <laughs> enough. This is corruption. <laughs> I had somebody, I, some student today asked if Ju- if Romeo g- went down on Juliet. I didn't know what to say to that. Absolutely. What you am I supposed yes. to say to that question? Oh, my God. Think, it's like, why? why do you think How did this happen well, to me in the no. classroom? I don't well, know. If she was willing to kill himself. If she was willing to kill himself over Romeo, he had to have gone down on her. I don't think he went down on her. And very, very well. How would he? And yet, and yet. So Jen and I have had this shit the fuck out. We have definitely had this out. Jen is a fucking textualist when it comes to Shakespeare. We've got twelve rounds on this. Jen, you have told me so many times it's in the text or it's not in the text. Is it in the text? That Romeo has, has he, has he, you know, in Juliet's holiest of holies, has this taken place? Okay. Is there a Romeo he, defi- you know, he definitely, he definitely has had sex. They definitely had sex. I don't know that that's yes. in the that's text. What, that's what getting married means in right. Shakespeare land. Exactly. That's Wait, what I, that means. But I don't, I don't know that that's in the text that he's actually gone down to. Well, it means, it means sex. Vagina land. Who knows what form. Ask about. Okay, now darling. intercourse. We're talking no, about. Okay, now my love. I am totally They definitely about had intercourse, in which, by the if way, don't the tell a bunch of teenagers that it's sexual intercourse because they will recoil from you immediately, which is right. actually kind of fun because that's what I said today. I said, in the I'm text like, is totally appropriate when it's something other than Shakespeare. Right. Shakespeare was never really even written down so much. So okay. I'm not okay. about okay. the text. Okay. So Sorry, we're, we're, I'm we're going on yes. a tangent when we're trying to like stop the what? recording so, so that Heather totally doesn't have to. Jen, we have to have a Shakespearean oh conversation <laughs> sometime because I, I produce lots of Shakespeare's with my high schoolers and I love Shakespeare and I'm a Shakespearean scholar. So we have to have a conversation someday. Oh, awesome. We yes. totally do. Yes, yes. totally. There's, there's a lot of Shakespearean scholarship on this. I'm doing the I'm doing the McScottish play in February. So. I mean, it was mainly oral, and all their all their audiences Jen. were illiterate, and like you know, exactly. exactly. When you say it was mainly oral, Jen, Paul, well, okay. Jen, and, Paul, and Kathleen, I, I'm saying yes. everybody. I'm saying he definitely um, went down there for sure. Episode number three, Bond, James Bond. <laughs> And well, that was Heather's. That was Heather's. Okay. Was that the close of the show? Is that yeah, yeah. I think that's the close of the show. The Outrider Podcast is orchestrated by me, Jason Quinn Mallott, and audio production magic is performed by Heather Ann Eden. You can find the show online at jquinnmallott.com, and if you would please hop on iTunes and give us a rating. We'll be back later in 2020 with more miniseries, live shows, and one-on-one conversations with writers, editors, and publishers. Thanks for listening. 